So I love looking at the, all these intentions right in front. You know, it's actually, we, we're thinking this is way, way better to have them all over surrounding the Buddha and Guan Yin because we, we, we didn't have the basket in place that we said we'd have. And people just said, okay, we'll just put it there. So it's uh, way better this way, less uh, contained. <laughs> so really, uh, just look, I, I haven't read them all, but people even left them out to be read, right? So it's, I mean, it's like, I guess, yeah. So it's very nice to sit here and look. It's almost like they're, uh, again, uh, the, the connections between those in the hall and those there, and it's connecting the Buddha, and there are these little strings from everyone to their intentions, and very nice. So each evening, uh, one of us will give a talk. And the talks are really given for a few reasons. One is uh, to give some orientation, to have a more sustained way of bringing out some of the meaning of the teachings and of the practices, to sometimes talk in a more systematic way about what comes up in practice. Uh, and it's also a chance uh, to keep practicing. You know, uh, see what works best for you, but what helps you to keep present as you're listening to the talk? For some, it might just be to be gently in the body and keep coming back to the body. And it may be that as we stay present, maybe there are two or three points out of the whole evening's talk that resonate, that really, really help guide you. Um, you could also consider uh, doing meta practice as you listen to the talk. I'll try to do a version of it as I talk, which is a little more challenging. <laughs> but uh, we can uh, continue to practice as we, as we listen. Again, could be just... Uh, uh, just staying present, maybe with the heart in an easy, gentle way. So there's something very profound and radical and simple about meta practice. We're just doing one thing. We're intending to build our capacity to bring wise, kind presence to every moment. And we're doing a kind of training here where we simplify the situation, don't have to deal with other people much, just a little bit. <laughs> and we trained by that simplification to see how we might bring forth the intention of kindness moment by moment. And then we also see what gets in the way. Those are the two core dynamics of the training to bring forth that intention expressed for most of us through the phrases to uh, touch warmth and kindness on the one hand, and then seeing what makes that harder or hard. 
what gets in the way, as it were. Maybe it could be the distraction or sleepiness or our own habits, what comes up. And so all of that occurs uh, in metta practice. And I think it's this very, very uh, ancient vocation that goes back to so many traditions to develop our being so that we come to each moment increasingly out of kindness and care, metta, that friendliness. You know, other traditions would use other words. Some might use the word love or the different ways that that is expressed in different languages. Again, this passage from the Metta Sutta, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. That kind of uh, both very simple and very powerful warmth and friendliness. You know, our colleague uh, Anushka Fernandapula uh, once was teaching metta uh, with, with me and I heard her talk about metta as uh, unstoppable friendliness, <laughs> which I really liked. Unstoppable friendliness. Very good translation. <laughs> so there's a wonderful uh, poem about metta that I read just a little while ago that comes from uh, a new book. I think I, I looked it up and it's actually um, not even a new book. It's scheduled for publication in February. But here it is. <laughs> and it's called The First Free Women, Poems of the Early Buddhist Nuns. And it's a wonderful translation. And these are the poems of some of the early nuns, who, some of whom lived at the time of the Buddha. And then in the period right after that, we would say the fourth and fifth century uh, before the common era. And uh, they're expressed in new translations. And these are all considered elders. The actual text is called the Terigata, T-H-E-R-I. And Terry would be the uh, way of talking about the elders, similar to Tara, T-H-E-R-A, which would be more in that tradition, uh, the term given to, to men. And so I wanted to read a, a wonderful poem from the uh, collection about the nature of metta. So here it is. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. 
Listen. I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. So these all, all these dimensions in that, in that reading, making oneself a friend to everyone, to me that points to the kind of inner work that, that's needed. Making everyone a friend, having that sense of connection. The whole world is your friend. It's like a way of, of life that this practice points to. There is no fear in this way of life. And I was reflecting on the way that uh, there's an old story in the tradition about how metta becomes an antidote to fear. And it goes like this. Uh, There were a group of practitioners who went off to do a period of practice and they went to the forest. And in the forest were a lot of different beings, among them tree spirits, who said, yes, please practice here. But they uh, didn't have an initial discussion about how long. (laughs) And essentially, According to the tree spirits, the practitioners overstayed their welcome. And the tree spirits decided to get rid of them. They had the capacity in this um, cosmology, we might say, they had the capacity to create really horrible images and very, very bad smells, which they did And the practitioners, to use a technical term, freaked out. (laughs) And they went back to the Buddha. And so we don't have those things happening to test you. (laughs) So they went back to the Buddha. And the Buddha basically said, yes, this is a hard situation. But I have something for you that will help you. And he said, I will teach you metta. And he taught them metta. And they went back to the forest. And the metta seemed to connect with a sense of fearlessness with them. And the tree spirits tried what they had done before. They had the horrible images come before the minds of the practitioners. They had bad smells. And the practitioners just stayed. The metta was protective. And uh, eventually the tree spirits said, hey, these are... These are kind of cool practitioners. And they said, we'll be your friends. <laughs> and we'll protect you, actually. <laughs> and so, and everyone lived happily ever after. <laughs> so that's, that's the story, right? And metta can be uh, a protector. You know, I've seen that it's, anyone wakes up at three in the morning with anxiety or fear, go right to metta. It really can work. We'll talk more about that, about it going home, but it really can work like that. Uh, I once had an experience where 
I was uh, going to a retreat in Colorado. Uh, it was in the mountains. It was, some of you may know, it was at Taramandala. And uh, it's a Tibetan center connected with Lama Sultramelioni. And I um, was offered a very nice uh, camping place. I was camping, so I was offered a very nice camping place. Um, somewhat secluded, it was like about, I don't know, a few hundred yards from everyone else. And they said, oh yes, and uh, you know, a week ago a bear did come through here. <laughs> but we caught it and we took it away. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll be here. And then we finished with the day and I got back to uh, the campsite, lay down, and I did have thoughts about the bear. And they continued. And I was thinking about the bear, and you know, I was in that situation, you know, where probably most of you have had the experience camping or being in the forest where every slight um, twig that is linked with a sound becomes the bear is coming. <laughs> right? And at a certain point, I remembered, it took a while, but I remembered metta. And so I started doing metta. And uh, I did it sometimes towards the bear, or for the bear. It didn't fit in any of my, I guess it would be the difficult person. <laughs> but uh, I kept doing it. I did it to different beings and um, took a while. I actually did it for three hours in a row. Right. And so it was getting late. <laughs> but at that point, something in me just relaxed. And I went right to sleep, and then my sleep was good, a little shorter than usual. <laughs> but my sleep was good, and I woke up, and I actually stayed there, and I didn't think about the bear the whole rest of the retreat. And the bear didn't come. <laughs> so anyway, that's, to, that, that's, that's in the poem, that sense of uh, metta is connected with fearlessness. It's interesting. Right? It's connected with that. And then there she, she also said in the poem, the mind can be one's friend. And I, I thought of uh, a wonderful line that many of us know from Sylvia Borstein where she says, which is really, it also points to the way that mindfulness and metta can be uh, connected ultimately. She said, may I meet this moment fully. That's more the mindfulness. May I meet this moment fully may I meet this moment as a friend. That's a way of practicing. And then finally she said that, uh, really pointed to the way that metta can also lead to freedom and liberation. That it's a, it's a very deep path. And in, in the teachings of the Buddha, it really is connected with a path to freedom a path to where one works through what stands in the way of freedom. And I was also reflecting on some of the kind of universal qualities of what we're doing and the way that it appears in different traditions. Uh, um, yeah, the beautiful saying by Mark Twain, he said, kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. 
And in the Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, it said, the highest form of wisdom is kindness. It's from the Talmud. And from the, uh, from the Jewish mystical text, the Zohar, it said, the world shall be built on love. By this, the world endures. So love, again, as the translation, sometimes met as translated by love. It's probably somewhat different, but it's the same territory. <laughs> yeah. And this is, uh, this is from the Christian tradition from uh, Thomas Merton, the contemplative. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether they are or not they are worthy. That is not our business. And in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. And then uh, from the Islamic tradition, our a friend of many of ours, uh, Rumi. <laughs> Rumi says, love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. <laughs> right, so these are all, you know, all the uh, other voices and traditions where there's really a very similar intention. And it's wonderful here that we have these practices which can directly cultivate that sense of kindness and and also be brought into daily life. Now, I'll, I'll read one more passage about this. Uh, this is from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that uh, you may have realized that our retreat uh, overlaps with Dr. King's birthday, which is tomorrow. And it also overlaps with the national holiday, which is next Monday. Right. So we'll be bringing in the voice of Dr. King uh, quite a bit. So here's uh, one of uh, the ways that Dr. King, I think, expressed something very similar to the path of metta. This call for a worldwide fellowship that, lists, that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and conditioned love for all people. This oft misunderstood and misinterpreted concept, so readily dismissed as a weak and cowardly force, has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as a supreme unifying principle of life. So we're in that cultivation of something which is very, very basic, profound, simple, powerful. So again, we continually, through the phrases or however we practice metta, we're moment by moment inviting that uh, friendliness to be there, the kindness to be there. And it's, uh, remember, an invitation. It's an intention. Again, not a demand, not a production. And it, sometimes there's metta there and sometimes there's not. And, you know, echoing what Eve was saying, I'll come back and talk about how sometimes in the cultivation of metta, we can get hard on ourselves because the metta is not strong enough. You are not 
producing enough kindness. So humor can be helpful because <laughs> there, there are some interesting ironies. So another way of practicing that I explored a few years ago with a person who's now a friend who was at a a one-month retreat that we were doing here. And uh, we developed a practice. And she thinks that I developed it, and I think that she developed it. But it was basically moment to moment. This was a, a general mindfulness retreat, but she was also doing some metta. It was to ask moment to moment, what's the kind thing to do? What's the kind thing every moment? And she would ask that, you know, when maybe the sitting wasn't going so, quote, so well, or uh, in the evening, you know, going to bed, or uh, should I do more walking, or, you know, things come up. And she would continually ask that. And we developed that into almost like a practice which then she took home after the retreat. It could be a beautiful daily life practice. What's the kind thing to do? Continually asking that. That's really also the heart of our practice. And ultimately, the reason that metta really works is that um, according to the tradition, according to the great sages, teachers, Uh, the elders, um, our deep nature is that of metta. That we're not so much inventing something, but we're uncovering who we are most deeply. In other words, that which gets in the way of metta is not as deep as the metta. This isn't deep in the tradition or very much in the tradition. Uh, The Buddha talked about the brightly shining quality of mind and heart. And he said that every being has that, even if they've done unskillful things, it's actually deeper than the habitual energies. And it's, the Buddha talked about it as luminous and there in all, all of us. So even though it's our deep nature, have you noticed that it's not always there? Anyone notice that today? Okay. About half of us that occurred. The other half you can come up and teach after, teach tomorrow night. <laughs> so um, there are challenges, as Eve was mentioning. There are challenges to metta. You know, we kind of, especially the first day. You know, we all want to really bow to you and say, "You've completed more or less the first day. Very good. It's, it, it's the hardest, right?" And uh, there are different challenges. There's distraction, right? How many people experienced some distraction? Okay. There, you know, we, we go to the past and future. We have different thoughts come. We can't be with the metta. There's also uh, sleepiness. You know, it can be restlessness. How many experience some sleepiness? Yeah. It's good to look around. One of the good things about doing a retreat is we can realize that we more or less share all of this, all the challenges. 
because sometimes we get hard in ourselves and we think, you know, I am uniquely problematic. <laughs> I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. <laughs> you know, I am uniquely problematic. So we can be sleepy, we can be restless. Uh, we can sometimes not feel like the heart's available. You know, that, that we're practicing and where is my kind heart? You know, where is it? It's not, doesn't always feel accessible. It can be for different reasons. There can be uh, sometimes our, you know, some of us, our conditioning makes it hard to access the kind heart, you know. You know, some of it we may have, some of us may have difficult experiences in the past or a difficult childhood or even some kind of trauma. And that can make it hard because maybe for many of us, it wasn't safe to have that open heart, right? And we have to learn to open it again and, and from, you know, to work through the residues of what might be there. You know, there can be, again, can be, um, can be self-criticism, self-judgment, very strong energy in our culture, very, very intense. So I want to, for the rest of the talk, I want to explore some of how we work with those kind of challenges. And I want to uh, do so by talking about several ways that our meta practice has the power to work with those challenges. So I want to talk about how in meta practice first we, we develop a greater stability of mind, less distraction, more concentration. It's part of what happens. Secondly, we really learn how to have this uh, kindness be more and more present. We learn to have that intention of kindness be more and more present as we, as we practice. A third process that happens, we, Eve referred to this uh, as a process of purification. It's a big part of what, of what happens uh, in meta retreats. Again, they're the two dynamics. We open to that intention of kindness. We open to the energy, the feeling of metta, and then we see what gets in the way. Those are the two processes which are occurring simultaneously. The second one, where we see what gets in the way, has aspects of purification. Again, we use that word if you might want to use a different word if that word doesn't resonate well. We could speak of transformation. Uh, and as we do that, we, uh, we also come towards uh, integrating the mind and heart and the body. That's a big part in our culture often we separate out the mind and the heart and the body. And part of what meta practice does is that we integrate those. I think it's very, very significant from a social and cultural point of view, what we're, what we're doing here, even though we, we experience it more individually. And we um, ultimately bring it out into the world. I won't say so much about that here. We'll talk more about that towards the end of the retreat. But that's what we can do. We can bring out, uh, we can bring out our practice into the world more and more. And that's that's um, 
that's what we do after we do this training. Then we, it's natural, our next step is to find ways to express it in all sorts of ways. So first, this development of greater stability that we work against uh, distraction. And we often use the word concentration to talk about uh, aspects of mindfulness practice and being with the breath, but also metta. And it's really this, the the word concentration in English uh, isn't great because it seems to often has the connotations of trying really hard. I'm gonna concentrate, right? And so some of us prefer to use the original Pali language word, which is samadhi. Or we could talk about uh, kind of the unification of mind is another, the unification of mind and body and hearts, another phrase that we could use. But it's really about uh, the etymology of the word samadhi is about a kind of a gathering or a bringing together. And so we, in our uh, meta practice, we're really just doing one thing. And we're doing it all the time. And, and we're keeping on coming back to the phrases. And it's a little bit like a continual prayer or continual chant, a continual mantra. And as we do it more, the mind can get stable. In fact, in some of the Buddhist traditions, one can use meta practice to go to very deep levels of concentration. You know, that are called the jhanas that go actually uh, beyond our, our, actually our ordinary experience of metta. And so metta has that capacity. It's really, we're just really doing one thing. There's a, um, there's a beautiful line from, uh, I think it's from uh, Kierkegaard. He says, purity of heart is to will one thing. And there's something, there's a certain beauty, a certain simplicity that we engage in in the meta practice. We just do one thing over and over again. Of course, it can not always be wonderful, right? <laughs> it can be, okay, this is the last meta retreat I ever do. It's mindfulness for me. <laughs> it could be a first day thought, right? Or uh, I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it is. It can be beautiful to do uh, to do one thing. There's a simplicity. We don't have to think things out, and it's you know, it is going in a beautiful direction, even though it can be challenging. So we develop that. Uh, we develop that level of stability through the metta practice, and uh, it's interesting. There's another quote I like from a a Russian Orthodox teacher of the 19th century named Theophane, who talked about the connection between that stability of mind and the warmth of the heart. Because in the uh, Russian Orthodox tradition, they do what's called the Jesus prayer, where they just has some similarities with metta, where they just keep saying a prayer to Jesus over and over again. And uh, Theophane was a practitioner of that, of that form. And he said that um, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Meaning, as the mind gets more distracted, it takes us out of our hearts and the warmth there. Dispersal of attention 
diminishes warmth. And so maybe just a few words to uh, point to how to how to work with this. Um, one of the supports for skillful development of samadhi is to ask oneself, am I trying too hard or am I trying too little? Is to get a sense for oneself. Is there over-efforting or is there under-efforting? Which of those do I need to do? And to ask oneself, and then to set an intention. Many of us tend to over-effort. We try too hard and we can set the intention at the beginning of the sitting or walking I'm going to bring a little more relaxation to my uh, practice. And for some of us, we may feel like it's a little bit too lax and we want to say, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little more consistent, right? So just to ask yourself where you fall on that balance. And we want to aim for this capacity to keep on coming back with what we could call a kind of relaxed persistence. You could say that at the beginning of a sitting, relaxed persistence, okay, okay, relaxed persistence. And we just keep coming back. And um, another suggestion is to actually, when even when there's, seems like it's quote unquote not working or the mind is a little, is quite distracted, sometimes just to stay with it. There's a mysterious aspect to the development of metta that some of us know that, and I think it was referred to in the story that Eve gave of Sharon Salzberg. You know, I had a very similar experience. Um, uh, The story with Sharon where she was practicing metta, what one detail you left out was that she didn't think it was going anywhere. This is a person who's kind of like the great metta teacher in the insight tradition at this point. she first practiced, it wasn't going so well. And, and she had to go to this meeting and she, and then she you know, broke the vase, I think, and, and had this come out. I, another line I heard was that she said, her first impulse was, you're such a klutz. And then she said, you're a klutz, but I love you. <laughs> and I had, a, I had a very similar experience where the first time I did metta for a week, I had no instruction. It was before the time that there were meta retreats. And I was just doing kind of on my own and it didn't seem to be going anywhere. And the phrases were dry. They're like what we sometimes call, we have a technical term uh, for dry meta. We call it phone book meta. <laughs> Some of us may get inspiration from reading the phone book, but most people don't. And so it was like that for me. And then uh, I wasn't even doing meta practice and over, over breakfast, I just noticed, I said to myself, you know, internally, I love you. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, so it was, uh, it was, uh, it's mysterious. Stay with it, even when it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. And you might notice five minutes later, something opens up. There's also this way that we learn to have the heart of metta more and more present, that we 
learn to have the heart there more. And again, I, I, you know, speaking personally, I think although I think I was like a emotional as a kid, you know, at certain times, and I got, I remember getting very emotional at certain movies when I was a teenager. Uh, and even, you know, I think, yeah, I remember, even got emotional sometimes during driver ed movies. <laughs> but, uh, but mostly I was thinking all the time, a student and partly being, you know, uh, a boy and then a young man, I was not trained to be attentive to my emotions. Right? Even though I think the heart was strong, and so I had to uh, work with that conditioning, you know, it's still, you know, it's still ongoing, right? And we have to work with the conditioning. So the gender conditioning can play a real big role in how we relate to the heart in something that's, uh, that's there. And so as we practice, we, we really can uh, start to have the heart there more and more, the kind heart, we might say, or the, the metta. And we, again, the, the, the logic of our practice is we start where it's easier, and then gradually we bring it out where it's harder. And this is our practice. And again, we, we do that here at the retreat. We'll bring it soon to the neutral person and then to uh, the one we call uh, the difficult person. And um, you know, we, we do that in training here. And then, of course, we go home and we then try to bring uh, the metta at first into easier situations, but we also can bring metta into hard situations. And something that I've reflected on is, is that uh, uh, we can have a quality of metta and it doesn't mean simply being nicey-nice. It's, I think, a really important point that we can have that spirit of kindness and warmth and sometimes set boundaries, say no, talk, have a difficult conversation with someone, and that can be done in the spirit of metta. That's advanced practice. <laughs> I, I've, I've called it... Uh, Tough metta, <laughs> kind of like tough love, you know. <laughs> so there's, there's, there, we can we can develop that that quality of of tough metta, and again we see this a lot if you look at the lives of uh, Dr. King or someone like Gandhi. They both talked about how do you bring the quality of love into these sometimes very intense and difficult social situations. And what we're suggesting is that uh, metta can be available for all situations. It's radical, right? It's a radical intention. And the, uh, you know, and some situations are hard and it's a training and we, we develop especially where it's easier first. That's the principle of all training. And the third area is that we go through uh, a process of purification or what we call purification, that we see what gets, uh, we gets in the way of metta, our habits, our reactivity, our, our wanting, sometimes our unresolved uh, issues or our unresolved conflicts. 
you know, I was thinking of the question that you asked in the uh, morning, I think, or morning or afternoon, I forget, maybe afternoon, was it morning or af- afternoon? That, you know, sometimes uh, sadness may come up. Some of that is like the dynamic of sometimes we, you know, we get r- really, really busy in daily life and then you come to a retreat and some unresolved material may be waiting for us and it surfaces on retreat. could be sadness. You know, if there was a, I don't know, if there was a major loss in the last few months that didn't have adequate time for grief, that can turn up in retreats, you know. And so that's a normal part of uh, being on retreat and it can surface during meta practice. We just see, we see what's there. My experience is comparing meta retreats with mindfulness retreats that people have much more intense dreams on meta retreats. Anyone have an intense dream last night? Yeah. Don't go looking for them. (laughs) But just to say that's normal. You know, like, I remember once someone came in in the morning and said, last night I was an axe murderer. Is this my true nature? I said, just normal, <laughs> just normal. So that happens. So there can, you know, this this could be called part of the purification process because we're, you know, it's something like we're really inviting. Can my kind heart come out? And it's natural that that which makes that harder will also come out. We have to give room for that. Um, one guideline that's helpful in terms of distinguish of how to work with you know, like difficult emotions when they come up. One guideline we use is that we stay with the meta practice and when things come up, if they're brief, you know, thoughts or emotions and they're brief, they last 10 seconds, half a minute, two minutes. We just, we don't use uh, mindfulness noting as we might with mindfulness. We just notice we're away from the meta and we come back. If something comes up that really lasts for a while and and has some degree of intensity, could be that sadness comes up and it stays for a number of minutes. Then we might actually shift to mindfulness practice and be with the sadness. And it might leave at a certain time, then we would go back to meta practice. So we could be, use mindfulness practice. We could also bring in the compassion practice that will we'll start exploring some uh, uh, in the next two days. We could also do compassion. So that's a guideline. Something strong comes up and it lasts for a significant area. We don't have to fight it and try to get out, it out of there and try to make the meta stay. We would actually stay with mindfulness in that situation. So that's an important, uh, important point. So all sorts of things can come up. We can have the sadness or grief. We can have anger. Uh, We can have old voices. Uh, You know, we can have uh, also wonderful, deep uh, intentions. Really could also be something that is an aspect of purification. We may really find, oh, I love this, gosh. How does, how does this love of purifying the heart and mind and body, do I need to make changes in my life? And retreats can sometimes do that. They can help, we might say, purify intention. 
Yeah. I noticed that. I actually just did a retreat over New Year's uh, here. I was uh, I did a self-retreat. I was a retreatant, not a teacher. And just having this open time, it, t- it, can, it can touch, we can touch more deeply and see what the, you know, see what our deeper intentions are, you know. And, and we can, you know, a, a big one for a lot of us is uh, self-judgment. It's something that uh, Eve and I have taught uh, a number of retreats on this theme together, right? On, we call it transforming the judgmental mind. And uh, it's a powerful area and it's something that comes up a lot. Metta is one of the responses to it, to that judgmental mind, you know. It's, uh, it's a big area for people who have uh, Western social cultural conditioning. Yeah. Don't find it in the same way in in other cultures. They have other problems, <laughs> right? But it's interesting, and it's something we work with. And if that comes up, if you notice yourself um, judging yourself about your practice, or if you notice yourself judging others, you know, there's not that much to do here. Have you noticed? <laughs> and noticing others and judging them is a favorite pastime. Again, I won't ask for show of hands, <laughs> but it's uh, and it's something you can just notice. That one of the ways we work with the judging mind is that we just notice the judgment. And one of the tricky things, I'll just say a little bit about what we found, is that uh, the judgmental mind is tricky because often it has a valid insight, but it's linked with reactivity, and the reactivity is what can be hurtful, right? You know, it's like uh, for me as a teacher, very important for me to see things about people I work with. If I'm judgmental towards the people I work with, it gets poisoned right away, right? And it's, we pick up on it really, really quickly. And so, but it's important for me to notice, but the judgmental energy is extra. It's, we could call that reactivity. So the formula we have for working with a judgmental mind is to preserve the insight and transform the reactivity and use the insight for the purposes of compassionate action. That's the formula. (laughs) And so here we could notice when the judgmental mind comes up, just notice it. And the meta practice in itself uh, could be something that we, that we do. Some, when I, I once did a long meta retreat about five weeks and whenever I was judgmental towards another, I instantly had to come back and bring in a few metaphrases for that person, <laughs> sort of to clean up my act or clean up my mess, <laughs> right? So that's something we can do. So as we continue to practice, we, I think one of the things we also do is we, we unify more our minds and hearts and bodies. Meta practice has that potential. And, Again, one of the reasons that I like to emphasize in the instructions, the uh, being with the image of the person or the felt sense and being in the body with around the heart is to bring the uh, heart, the emotions and the body more into the meta practice. And there's a way in which it really can help integrate our being. And ultimately we want to integrate the wisdom dimension, the the kindness, the heart, and have it be embodied. I think that's a very deep aspiration. As I mentioned earlier, I think really, really crucial 
um, from a social point of view, a cultural point of view. I mean, we can look at uh, we can look at a lot of the last few hundred years and see how there's kind of been a a disconnection of the mind and the heart, you know, and um, let alone the development of the kind heart. We can see it like, I know, uh, like even something like science, you know, in the model of science, it's a kind of rational knowing, get your emotions out of there. And again, I'm not, the issues are tricky, but there's a way that we often disconnect that and we don't necessarily in our schools bring in emotions so much. I think a lot of that's changing but how many of us had education in emotional life and in embodiment in our schools, right? That's an example, that's a clear example of that split, right? right? And so with the meta practice, I think there's some healing. I think it's actually this connection of these different parts of our being, which meta practice can really help, I think is actually crucial to our future. And it's crucial to um, creating a culture of wholeness, which doesn't uh, disconnect us from some part of ourselves. Again, I won't, I won't give social commentary. I think we can, can go there pretty easily. Right? We can see the, the lack of, uh, I remember during the 2016 election, there was a columnist who, who I like uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle. And he said, I think that the biggest issue facing our country is not deleted emails, and he went down the whole list of all the stuff, but he says it's the lack of empathy. We could say the lack of kindness, the way that things get polarized and fractious, right? So there's something really, I think, socially healing and personally creating wholeness in our meta practice. Maybe we can go more into that later. So. There's a lot, lot more that could be said there. Um, the end of the Metta Sutta, it goes like this. Freed from hatred and ill will, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one has clarity of vision. So there's a linking of the wisdom and the heart there's a wonderful passage that I really like from the uh, Hindu uh, sage uh, Nisargadatta. Some of you may know his work. He was, uh, I think he was what was be called a bidiwala, which meant he sold cigarettes. I, I, don't, I haven't read about the ethical dimensions of how that fit, but anyway, won't go there. But um, he would just uh, offer wisdom as he sold bidis, you know, in, on the streets of India. And he said this, I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. And then we bring, 
we bring our meta practice out into the world. And we will be exploring this more towards the end of the retreat. But again, we go through the training here. We bring it out into the world. And in, in the way our daily lives also have that cycle. If we have a daily practice, in a sense, we train. We start with the easier situations and we bring the quality of metta out into what we do in our daily lives. And then again, we can also, and this is where the example of Dr. King is so important, we can actually have it be the guiding energy of uh, social change, right? Not the usual way a lot of people think about it, but it really can be. I think we're, we're waiting for that to be articulated again. There's a, there's a passage from Dr. King The end of our work is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. Cornell West once said, the public face of love is justice. So so let me close by coming back to the poem that I read from this book, The the First Free Women, Poems of the Early Buddhist Nuns. I'll come back and read what I read before. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. We have now about uh, half an hour for walking meditation. It can be out with the stars, if you wish, or inside. And we'll come back for, uh, I, think, I think, a short, a shorter sitting than usual. Is that okay, Eve? Mm-hmm. We usually like on the first evening 
to do the, the discount version of the, the late sitting. And so we'll have a, a short sitting and then we'll, Eve will lead us in chanting. Okay. So thank you for your kind attention and uh, we'll continue our meta practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.